there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, and you're all very welcome to the uh, RTE Your Politics podcast. We're not coming to you from the bowels of Leinster House like we usually do. We've got these much more salubrious uh, surroundings here in the UCD New Student Centre Cinema. And I want to thank our hosts in particular, the UCD Politics and International Relations Society for having us along. And as I say, we're joined by two people I'm sure are familiar to all of you. Uh, They're certainly, I don't know whether you're exactly the local TDs, but anyhow, we have uh, Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit, TD for Dunleary Rathdown, and Neil Richmond, Finnegave TD for Dublin Rathdown and Minister of State for Enterprise. And you pretty mu- you're both ex-UCD and you pretty much cover UCD, really, in your representations. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I loved my time here. It's expanded greatly <laughs> since, uh, since I was a student, but an awful lot of the... Uh, people from my area would end up in college here, uh, so it's nice to be back, and hopefully that they don't ask yeah. questions that are too difficult for me at least. Neil, test, test Neil as much as you like. Student, <laughs> student memories. I used to love going to anti-war and anti-fees protests, being addressed by Richard and cheering <laughs> along massively. Um, so we're co- we're coming full circle. Um, it sits between both of our constituencies, but obviously it is in Dublin Rathdown for electoral purposes, the residences and the president of the UCD. So I'll, I'll make sure to do a bit of canvassing after this as well. Yeah, you see, you can't beat geography in Irish politics. You really can't. I want to start. Um, Holly Cairns uh, became leader of the Social Democrats today and she made her opening speech in the Dáil. And I was talking to Lauren from the Politics Society uh, here earlier and I decided we'd start with this. Because I want to, I'll start with you, Neil Richmond, because what she said in her opening speech was that she's the leader of, the f- of a party that's the first generation to be worse off than their parents, that young people's adult lives are on hold, that we're now in the bottom third of the EU for home ownership, that Fine Gael has been in government nearly all her adult life, and on Fine Gael's watch, the housing crisis has become a disaster. And she asked, when will people on average incomes be able to afford to rent or buy a home? How much longer before the government's housing plan works? What do you say to that generation, that accusation you've failed them? Well, firstly, I want to congratulate Holly on becoming leader of Social Democrats. I think that's really important that we recognise it's a serious achievement. Youngest ever leader of an Irish political party. Um, she's a very good colleague in the door. Wish her well. Don't always agree with her on lots of things, but there's lots of things I do agree with her on. In particular, the fact that housing is the biggest challenge socially and economically facing the state at the moment. Do I think we've failed this generation? Well, firstly, I haven't given up that we're going to correct and right the wrongs that have happened in housing. And if we look at the amount of houses being built last year, already the amount of commencements this year, I think we genuinely are starting to break the back in that. But there's so many ways that this generation is doing so much better than previous generations went before economically and socially. We look at the standard of living, we look at life expectancy, we look at the, the social and civic rights that have been achieved in the last decade, and Richard was at the forefront of that. Um, as much as we're going to disagree on lots tonight, we both were part of two, I would say, massive uh, referenda that mm-hmm. were over overdue in this state. And simply, if you look at 
the life that people can have and the fact that we have more people wanting to come home to Ireland. We've net inward migration. When I left UCD... So we've never had it so good? Far from it, Anya, but we are in a good place. And to say that we're failing the generation and this generation is having it terribly, I think we can pick apart that. On housing, absolutely massive challenges that have to be addressed. What has happened so far simply hasn't been good enough. And I've no problem saying that regardless of how long my party has been in government or however long I've been in the Oireachtas. Richard Boyd Barrett, you disagree, I presume? I do. I mean, when I was in UCD, uh, you could find rental accommodation at a a reasonable cost. Uh, Now, if you are looking for rental accommodation anywhere in the vicinity of UCD, Dublin, or most of the big urban centres, you're automatically in a a difficult situation, if not in an outright crisis. Because... There isn't the accommodation available or what is, is an astronomical price and rent. Um, and I don't see any sign of it getting better because to me, that crisis is a direct result of policy decisions and policy priorities of successive Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil governments who have had a, a very conscious policy of saying the market is going to solve the housing crisis for us. Property developers are going to solve the crisis. And they the point is they have no interest in doing that. What they have an interest in is making a lot of money from the housing crisis. And when you look at rents in this area now, they're an average of €2,500 or more uh, and rising constantly. That means the vast, vast majority of people cannot afford them. And it's the same with house prices. House prices in... Dunleary, Ratdown, in our area, average, are now about €650,000. So that's about 90% of working people are priced out of the possibility of ever owning their own home. That is a disastrous failure on the most basic thing you need, which is a secure, affordable roof over your head. And I I don't see it getting any better, and all the evidence is that it's getting worse. When you look at the numbers of families, children, individuals... Uh, who are in homeless accommodation or, for that matter, the amount of students who find themselves in crisis situations when it comes to looking for somewhere to live for the college term. So I, I think they failed and I think the failure is written into the the ideology of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, which is let the market do it and the market is not capable of doing it. I'd love to hear from some people in the audience about your experience on this. Lauren was talking earlier about you know, is there a sense of a divide between, you know, the people who, you know, live locally and kind of, you know, don't have to worry about issues with rent, the people who are coming up from the country and, you know, the extra economic penalty, having to work part time, you know, and jobs and the strain that puts, for instance, especially coming up to final year or if you're planning to go away next year. I know half my kids and their friends are heading off to Australia and that seems to be the I'm seeing a couple of nods for Australia. Anyone got plans for Australia? Hands up. One. Anyone else? Only one going to Australia. We get the mic up to you. Will you talk to us? Why are you going? And is it to do with the accommodation crisis here? Hi, I don't know your name. Sorry. Uh, I'm Maeve. Maeve. Yeah, I'm from Donegal, so I would have rented for the whole four years. I was in UCD. I'm just in my year, Grace, now. Um, but yeah, all of the strains that you mentioned, like they're all very relevant to me and like all of my classmates that would have moved up from the countryside, you know. And I think there's a big discrepancy now between p- 
people who didn't have to rent and weren't at like in the middle of that like rental crisis um and we're the ones now who've kind of had to think about leaving when maybe our classmates who've been in Dublin have had the opportunity to save like I uh, most of my paycheck has been going on rent for the five years I've been in Dublin and I have no choice now but to leave no choice would you want to stay if you could if you could afford to live here yeah like there's parts of Dublin I love and it's it's a pity like I have to think about leaving um I don't think like the prospects aren't very enlightening you know and like I don't know how I'm going to make my way with the with the rental crisis I'm getting kicked out of my house in a couple of months because my landlord's selling up and there's no nowhere else to go you know and I mean that's the story I'm sure you've heard that in your constituency you've heard that in your yeah. constituency clinics as well and it's the same I mean it's great that you're all planning you know we we love to see but but we don't want to see our kids having to leave the country because they can't afford to live here no and so what's the answer well there's a couple of answers and there's no one answer and I don't fundamentally believe the market dictates housing policy, nor would I want it to. I do believe absolutely in state intervention, but the market has a place to play. Private developers have a place to play. It can't be done by the state alone. <coughs> and what I want to see is new accommodation of all sorts being developed. Student, uh, cost rental, social, affordable, and indeed private. Um, I want to see rapid build housing coming on all our campuses. This year, the acting president of UCD said that they can't start um, construction on the 1300 extra accommodation because of the costs. The government, through Simon Harris, have stepped in to meet that up to make sure that we can address rising costs of construction that are obviously being driven by outside factors. The day I left UCD, I, I emigrated. I went for two years. I didn't have to. I chose to. And I was very lucky to be in that mm. position. But when I came home, all my friends had to emigrate because the crash had happened and they all had to emigrate because there was no jobs. So then we're in the situation where there's an abundance of jobs, we can't get talent, but the real struggle and where government can play a part is filling in that massive accommodation gap. And I recognise it's there. I'm not going to say that this is a one-off or it's anecdotal. Mm -hmm. It is impacting a lot of people's life choices, which it shouldn't have to. But there, on the flip side, there's an awful lot of positive things happening in this country. And crucially, I do believe that we are starting to see the level, the sheer volume of construction needed to develop all those forms of houses. We're seeing house prices in this constituency start to drop, uh, in these two constituencies, this county finally starting to drop marginally. But the more we get built, the more they'll drop. And there's, there's 70,000 active planning permissions in the state. We need to realise those 1,400 up the road at the central mental And the new planning legislation, you think that'll help with that? I think it'll help, but it'll only part help. Ultimately, we need to play our part in terms of addressing labour shortages. That comes under my brief as Minister for Employment Affairs. But also um, aspects like the, the rising costs of raw materials, the rising costs of building a house. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter if that's being built by a private developer or by the state. It is expensive to build a house now. And he, I, I mean, I, I saw you shaking your head there when Neil was talking, but, you know, even if you were you were in power tomorrow, even if you were, you know, sitting in there and you were the Minister for Housing, you couldn't change any of this overnight. You couldn't do anything for me in the next couple of months, could you? Yeah, I think you could do a few things. I mean, first of all, I don't know if it would directly impact, but it would directly impact on the situation she outlined, which is landlords evicting on grounds of sale. Like, we have argued and put forward bills, which the government have rejected, that people should not be evicted on those grounds. 
anywhere or the vast majority of other places in Europe, if a landlord is selling the property, they have to sell the property with the tenant in situ. Uh, so the fact that your landlord is selling would not lead you to be evicted. The government resists that. But what if he's selling it to someone who wants to live in that house? What about the person who wants to purchase I, it? I think we have to distinguish between what is principal private residential accommodation and what is uh, rental accommodation. And that's what happens in the rest of Europe. So if you want to invest in rental accommodation, then that's what it is. It's rental accommodation. Because the people who rent deserve security. Why should renters be second-class citizens when it comes to the security of the place they uh, have to live with their family and with their children? I mean, the new owner wants to improve it. What's the the new owner wants to make renovations? What if the new owner wants to look for a different type of tenancy? Like, you're trying to look for a blanket solution that when you drill down, that ultimately it may stop an element of evictions, but it won't solve the crucial issue that we need more homes in this state of all types. Well... Again, all of those things are answered by the way things are done in many other parts of Europe. If there's substantial refurbishment, if there are substantial refurbishments should be done, alternative accommodation should be provided by the landlord. That is the situation in much of the rest of Europe, and that tenant should be offered first call on going back into that tenancy. Uh, But the point is, you cannot, particularly when the numbers of people who are renting for all of their lives is increasing now, you cannot have a situation where hundreds of thousands of people, individuals and children uh, do not have security and and face the prospect at any point in time of their landlord saying, sorry, I've decided now to get out of the business and you're uh, going to be evicted even if there's nowhere else for you to go. I mean, obviously, we have to build more public and affordable housing, so we're not dependent on the private rented market. But in the meantime, we should not be evicting people into crisis situations. Let me do, the government is telling us, and we have an eviction ban that's in place at the moment, and homeless numbers uh, continued to hit another record uh, despite that. Uh, There's a decision to be made on the eviction ban by the government, whether it's to be continued uh, or after the end of March. uh, And that decision is going to be made by the 17th of March. Now, before I hear from both of you on that, I'm going to do two things. I want to see a show of hands from the audience. Who is in favour of continuing the eviction ban? The eviction ban should stay in place, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Okay, I have eighteen, nineteen there. Who's against? Who thinks we should leave because we've been hearing about landlords leaving the market? Uh, and the problems in constitutional rights. So 19 to 2. So Neil Richmond, in terms of the decision government has to make, there's a pretty clear uh, opinion being expressed by our audience there that, you know, despite what we've been hearing about landlords leaving the market, uh, the eviction <coughs> should be in place. Would you be guided by that? Well, we have to be guided by what will be the impact be of extending it. You know, it might sound popular to say we'll stop evictions, but what does that mean if there is a flight from the market? That is a very real issue. And it's not just about constitutional rights. We want to keep small landlord, landlords in the market. We don't have enough people renting. And if they decide, you know what, we're not going to rent anymore. And I get it from both sides. I get lots of people who genuinely say you have to extend the eviction ban. And it's made passionately and understandably and earnestly in the doll every day by Richard and many others. And it is considered. But equally, I have a dozen emails this morning from landlords in this constituency who can go, this is my income, this was my pension, you know, I want to move my kids into it because I bought, I'm from Donegal and I bought an apartment in Dublin when I could and I want my kids to be able to live there, but I can't. So there is a balance to be had is the point I'm trying to make and a decision will be made 
by the cabinet based on all the factualities and not just a show of hands. Lauren, I'm going to bring you in before we go to Richard. Lauren. Yes, yeah, so just <coughs> I just kind of wanted to tie back into the topic of, I suppose, on-campus accommodation. You mentioned there that the government helped UCD in building the new accommodation. Um, that new accommodation, I believe the cheapest room for the nine-month period is about 14 grand, yeah. which is astronomical. And even if you walk around today, you'll see that it is mainly international students who are already paying incredibly high fees to come here and study that are just paying that extra money anyway if they already have to pay it. So I suppose, I was just wondering, is there any real actions being taken by the government? Is there any push from opposition parties as well in terms of helping students? Because what you have is a lot of, including myself, students that have college and then are working at the weekends and we don't get a break at all because the accommodation has to be paid for. We also have to sustain ourselves. We also have to pay for our food shop, all these other cost of living crises that are coming into effect at the moment. So that was my question, I suppose, for the two of you. What actions are being done at the moment? Because at the moment it's astronomical and it is continuing to grow. Just and you were saying earlier, just before, the, the, it, it's like a two-tier system nearly in, in third-level education now for those who can afford and those who have the higher costs. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Especially, I suppose, there seems to be kind of a growing divide between people coming from the countryside <coughs> so a lot of students coming from the countryside coming from doing their leave insert feel locked out from studying in the likes of Dublin um, but it is also an, a growing issue even for the likes of I'm from Clomel in County Tipperary I know there's students that are looking to study in UL which obviously isn't that far away and they're struggling to get accommodation and they're struggling to get accommodation that costs you know, normal a normal figure for the year as well so um yeah there does seem to be a growing divide there's an issue i know students myself that turned down the option to go and study in dublin to do a better course because they simply can't afford the accommodation especially knowing that it is increasing every year so that that unfairness and that divide that's building up in third level education and what can be done to bring down particularly the cost of accommodation for students just on the specific accommodation, you see the 1200 that I referenced. Um, the minister agreed to subsidise that on the condition that rents will be capped and that rents will be put in an affordable rate. That was the decision made. That wasn't in place when UCD largely financed it themselves. But the condition the government said, if you want us to intervene to address the rising costs, um, and all third level institutions are now in that situation, we want rents to be capped, we want them to be affordable for students directly to target that. And that'll feed into future construction where we're looking for third level to really be the pioneers of rapid bill or modular homes, whatever you want to call them, um, for on-campus accommodation. Look. Belfield is a campus that all of us here know really well. There is a dearth of accommodation here. For over 25,000 students, there's only 3,500 on-campus residents. That's not sustainable. The ambition is to double, but if it's to double, it's to be doubled at an affordable rate. And the government has forced that commitment from the college authorities and equally all other third-level uh, institutions across the state. Richard? Well, first of all, I think if we're going to address the crisis, I think we have to get back to student power if you like and getting out on the streets and i'm part of the raise the roof coalition and the national housing and homelessness coalition which usi and ucd students union are involved in <clears throat> and we've been on the streets protesting with the student unions and other organizations because it is part of that societal wide housing crisis uh so i think Insofar as the government have been forced to make any moves, it is because people got out on the streets and uh, put pressure on them. And I think we need a hell of a lot more of that because we're still a hell of a long way from where we need to be. And 
I mean, to my mind, the idea that people are paying, as they are, 12 and 1400 euro a month students is just insanity. And that, that means huge swathes of students cannot possibly afford that. We have big international investment funds coming in and building that type of accommodation. And for uh, Neil's, uh, Neil's benefit, that's the sort of stuff I object to, along with student unions who've also objected to it, because that's land and labour that should be constructing affordable student accommodation, but instead is building uh, extremely expensive stuff that is only uh, affordable by, you know, people with a lot of money, right? That is not the solution. Uh, we need to subsidise student accommodation so it is affordable for absolutely everybody. And then we need to get rid of all the other financial obstac obstacles to uh, furthering your education to the maximum level. It makes no sense when we don't have nurses, we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough construction workers, we don't have enough, uh, you know, just about well, we every... we train them, but we don't keep them in the country. Certainly the health staff, we do train them. We train more than nearly anyone But there's loads the of them, there's loads of them, and one of the groups that I've been campaigning for and with for a while is, is psychologists, right? And psychologists came to me a few years ago, and I've been championing their cause ever since. They're trying to get qualified with doctorates or masters in psychology because we have huge waiting lists, which is often because of lack of psychologists for assessments for children with special needs, for therapies. And they say that the fees they're having to pay for masters and doctorates are leading to many of them dropping out and not being able to qualify uh, because they're being asked to work on placement and pay fees when they have no ability to... How much is a master's now? It's about 15,000 euro, I think. It's about 15,000 euro. I mean, Really? Yeah, you're nodding. About 15,000. And you've got to... Well, I suppose, like, I think one of the ones I was looking at came in around five grand in Ireland. But then if you're looking to migrate and do your master's elsewhere, you're obviously looking at higher fees as well as other fees. But the way I see it is if you're going to have to pay the amount for the accommodation in Ireland anyway, you may as well pay it somewhere else. Um, so and you were saying, I mean, you're in final year, aren't you? And I, I don't know who else is in final year, year here, but a lot of people are looking at going abroad next year for the Masters. Is that right? If you're doing that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of naughty. And, and again, even though the fees are higher, it's just the accommodation, the balance off there. Yeah, exactly. Like, especially, I suppose, somebody like me who's from the countryside has spent the last four years studying and working in Dublin. I don't really want to do another year or two of it, especially when I'm going to be under even more pressure of the master's course itself. So it just it does seem like the right option to just go and explore okay. my options. Here's the thing, though, Richard, and, you know, I, I know it, you, you, it's always harder for somebody on the government side in the yeah. sense that, you, <coughs> you know, it, it is, yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's on your watch. And the, uh, But equally, what Micheál Martin was talking about in the door last week and the fact that there was a net loss of landlords uh, from the market last year, that more people sold out than bought in to be young private landlords. So it's the point about the road to hell being paved with, with good intentions that just coming briefly to wrap up on the eviction ban, uh, before I bring yourself in there, um, that actually I mean, keeping the eviction ban in place would shrink the amount of rental properties available. And that's the last thing anyone here needs. OK, well, first of all, we don't have figures, but we need to get them. And actually, I've put in some questions on this, try and get the truth on this matter. But I suspect there are more tenancies than there's ever been. Uh, so this talk of exit of landlords maybe masks over the fact that there is an increase of people in private rental accommodation. In fact, everything would suggest that has been the case. Uh, so uh, 
I don't buy the government's argument, first of all. Uh, but the problem is that all those people are now renting at extortionate levels of rent. I mean, they're just shocking in Dublin now. Uh, so that needs to be uh, controlled. And we need to bring uh, rents down to to affordable uh, levels. But obviously, in addition to that, you need to build public and affordable housing that is on a not-for-profit basis. And, th- I mean, the first of all, the government, the Fine Gael Labour government, almost, what's well, did, stop building public housing for about 10 years. And we are, de- we are paying a very, very bitter price for that. And even now that they say they're ramping it up, the figures are abysmal. In the first uh, three quarters of last year, there was about 200 local authority houses built in Dublin by the actual local authorities themselves. The figures are abysmal. So there seems to be no will on the part of the government to really uh, get the state itself to build public and affordable housing. But instead, it's all about letting private developers who are making a lot of money uh, continue to profit from other people's housing misery. All right. Sorry, yeah, yourself. Yeah, just the... Sorry, I don't know your name. Sorry. Yeah, yeah Kean. Kean, how to are go you? back to what you were saying about um, the fact that we, ha- we have no nurses, we have no doctors, and that people are finishing their primary degree and having to go abroad. And then to hear the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, say that young people, when they go abroad, find out the grass isn't always greener. Like, I have never heard of anyone coming back from Europe or Canada or Australia and said, no, no, the standard of life is better here. Um, do you think we could be facing quite an existential issue where we're forcing a generation of young people in this country to move abroad, many of which will settle abroad and not come back? I can tell you that's what the mammies are all scared about. But anyway, let's hear what our politicians have to say. Yeah, I think we have to balance the arguments and the emotions, and they're valid with the statistics of how many people actually are emigrating, why they're emigrating, the fact that we've net inward migration and the fact that more people returned, Irish citizens returned from abroad last year than left. People do want to come home. People do want to come home after a few years, not just because this is a good place to live. I've travelled the world, I've lived in lots of different countries and this is a brilliant place to live. It is a brilliant place to grow, but there's massive challenges. I'm not going to deny them. and I'm not going to say that they aren't a huge concern and they aren't a huge motivator. But people do want to come home for very clear, good reasons. And more people want to come home that want to leave. But you're right. There are people who are concerned that they're qualifying and there isn't a future with them, certainly not in the near future as a young graduate or someone who's just left school who is facing difficult accommodation choices. That is the number one issue that has to be addressed. It has to be addressed rapidly and it has to be addressed in partnership. It can't be just done by the government alone. It takes a long time to buy public housing or to build public housing. Since about 2016, we're due to have 12, 1400 homes on the Central Mental Hospital site a kilometre away from here in Dundrum. But in that same time, we've had about 2,500 homes built further up in the road where I live around Stepaside. So there is that balance. It is quicker to build private accommodation because the Land Development Agency, for very good reasons, has more consultations, does more engagement. It is a slower process. So that's why it needs to be done by everyone. Private, public, affordable, um, cost rental. We throw everything at it. And I am heartened that we are seeing more houses built last year uh, than was expected. We are seeing more commencements. We're seeing €4 billion put towards social housing, to Richard's point. And this year it'll be more again. And that will start to break it down and will put you in a situation, I hope, when you come to graduate, or probably not you, I'll be honest, and wouldn't dismiss it, um, that 
it isn't a requirement to emigrate because we all come from generations where we know what it was to be a requirement to emigrate. And that could be in the in the crash period when I was in college, can be the 80s and my parents' generation where you simply didn't matter where you were from, Dublin or the country, there was no jobs, there was no living. And Ireland was a pretty bleak place. The Ireland that Richard and I and everyone else went to college with 20 years ago was not a good place as it is today. And I think it's important to say that. Isn't that a fair point? Um, well, certainly the 80s was a disaster and huge numbers of my friends uh, had to leave because there was nothing here for them. There was mass unemployment. And indeed, I went for a while myself, ironically, building council houses in London, uh, as many as many uh, people had to do Were then. Were a good builder? I was only a labourer, so <laughs> I mean, but I, I did go back to Peckham there a few years ago to see was the house, sta- the council house still standing, and it was. I so built a house in Galway. I, yeah, I was a terrible builder. Yeah, it didn't do. Summer labouring's a good, good vocation yeah. to go with. But I, 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 we'll see about the net immigration migration figures. The figures I think um, Neil is referring to, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think are uh, 2021, and we'll see about 2022. Uh, it, because of the housing crisis, I think you will see the numbers of young people leaving or qualified is going to increase. And the INMO, the group that represents the uh, nurses, including the student nurses and midwives, uh, did a survey which suggested that 70% of those who were doing nurse and midwife training were planning to leave the country. Uh, and then you look at the state of our hospitals, the crisis is really, really dire, worse than it's ever been. Uh, I mean, uh, and, uh, by the way, worse than it was even in the 80s. In the 80s, you could go into the A&E and you'd be seen pretty quickly. Now you go into the A&E, you could be waiting there for 24 hours. Uh, and there's massive shortages of staff. And that a lot of that is down to nurses, midwives. Uh, they don't have the staff. They can't recruit. They can't retain them because a lot of the young people with nurse and midwife training are just leaving or refusing to work in that situation or can't afford to live in Dublin. Uh, so... I, I think the trajectory is not good at the moment, Neil, because young people are saying, I cannot possibly afford these rents and I cannot possibly afford these house prices. And I don't really see any sign that they're going to drop. I really don't. Let's hear from the audience again. Yourself there at the back. Hi, I'm Emer. Um, Hi, Emer. wanted to ask about the housing crisis. So I think we've seen in the past few months that a lot of the... Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs are actually landlords and there's been some scandals with um, private interests not being registered correctly. So, Neil, do you think it slightly takes away from your argument about the housing crisis that you do, not you in particular, but a lot of the TDs in your party have certain interests at stake here? Well, I'm not a landlord, for a start. I am very fortunate to be mortgaged up to my gales for my family home with my wife. Um, But certainly the... The last few months have been very difficult for politics and it has been difficult because we've created it to be difficult. And we have to acknowledge that we've damaged trust uh, when there are revelations about planning applications and non-declared ownerships. That is an extremely difficult thing. The vast majority of Fine Gael TDs aren't landlords, despite the spin that's out there. There's plenty of landlords in other parties, opposition and government. Um, and being a landlord isn't a bad thing. We do need landlords. We need people to provide rental accommodation. We need good landlords, individuals uh, for housing and for commercial reasons and to manage stops and everything else like that. But certainly it's it's made the efforts that are being valiantly made by ministers, be it Dara Bryan or Kieran O'Donnell, it's certainly taken the shine off it and it's made it very difficult. And I acknowledge that. And it's up to us in turn to prove that we are genuinely serious to 
repeat and improve the numbers of house uh, building and commencements notices um, of the last year and of the last two months. Um, it is the number one priority and I don't say that glibly, I don't say that in a slogan and I accept every single criticism that will be labelled but the key to bringing down rents, the key to giving people better accommodation options is supply. It is building more houses, more apartments, more duplexes uh, of all kinds across the country, particularly in Dublin, particularly on our third level campuses. Right. Is there anyone else who has to make a point on who wants to make a point on housing yourself there with the red tie? If we can get a microphone down to him, David. And then we've about 10 minutes left and there's a couple of other things I want to bring in. So if there's anything else you want to uh, raise or discuss in the time that's left, get your hand up. Yourself and the red tie, please. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask... A sorry, your name? Eli, sorry. Eli, um, how are you? One of the uh, suggestions in terms of ameliorating the supply problem has been suggesting building upwards and just for... Deputy Boyd Bard, there's a recent development in Monkstown which was objected on the basis that would ruin the Victorian ambience of the area. And so I just was wondering, what's the, is that still the official position or is that uh, a wise to prioritise during a housing emergency? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. We, we objected to the strategic housing developments because, first of all, they breached the county development plan, which was, it would set height and scale requirements but also because the uh, cost, once you go above about five or six stories, increases exponentially. So there's no possibility of apartment complexes that are being built at that height being affordable. Um, they're cheaper if you build them high density, but at, at lower heights. And on almost every single site, and although Fine Gael made great play of this, uh, but on almost every single site where we put in submissions, we made it absolutely clear that we thought these sites were suitable for housing, but we wanted to see public and affordable housing of a different character that would actually meet the housing needs of the area. I mean, to take one really dramatic example, the co-living development uh, in Ablan Avenue in Dunleary, uh, where we had campaigned for a decade, it used to be in a, a school, to get public and affordable housing on that site. Nothing was done about that. And then along comes a developer and says, I'm going to build 200 co-living apartments, which are now going to be rented out at, I think it's €1,800 Euro a month. But you have to have an income of, in the region of about €60,000 a year in order to even apply for these things that are the size of a disability car parking space with pull-out sofas, right? And you're only allowed rent them for six months. In other words, they're not going to meet the housing needs of the people in the area. So for me, you have to object to those things because we want that land used for public and affordable housing. The same was true about the IADT. There was a student uh, accommodation development the IADT Students' Union opposed it because they said, we want affordable student accommodation on that. We don't want an international investment fund coming in and building stuff that we won't be able to afford. And we supported them in objecting to that, not because we didn't want student accommodation, but because we wanted affordable student accommodation on a site right beside the college. Uh, so that's the, you know, the idea that we should just let private developers do whatever the hell they want in order to address the housing crisis. I fundamentally reject that approach. What we need is a planned approach right. to deliver the stuff that we actually need to meet student need, to meet community need, uh, to meet the need for affordable housing. All right. I want to deal with one other thing um, before we wrap up. 
Uh, and that is the letter that People Before Profits sent today to Sinn Féin, the Social Democrats and left-wing independents to open a conversation about the formation of a left government after the next general election. No Labour Party, why not? Because I think, as Holly Kearns herself said today when she was asked a similar question, that the trust has broken down between the Labour Party and the people who traditionally voted left, working class people, ordinary people who are looking for a, a genuine alternative to the centre-right parties of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And I think that's a fact. And that was because they made a fatal decision to go into government with Fine Gael and implement absolutely crippling austerity. And I think that has destroyed the Labour Party. But is that, that kind of interfactional, interparty squabbling amongst the left, the reason we have never seen a left-led government in this country. I, no, I don't. I think if you look at the history of the, the entire state, you saw surge after surge at particular points in time. The, the entirety of the history of the state, particularly for Labour, where there was disillusionment with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, almost every decade that happened, but then Labour, instead of saying we are going to create a left alternative, on successive occasions ended up propping up Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael governments. And every single time they did it, their own support collapsed. And I think the 211-216 government was the last straw for many of their own supporters. So to us, the lesson is, if we want to create an alternative to what is more than 100 years of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael government, the left have to stay on the left uh, and not become a prop to governments that have a fundamentally different and to parties that have a fundamentally different uh, outlook and one that we would certainly argue has let us down. And Neil Richmond, uh, what's your take on the, the kind of constant fragmentation? What was it being the first, you know, the first item on the agenda is the split and so on that has constantly stopped the left coming together and if you like, punching with its numerical force in Leinster House? I sought election to go into government. I entered politics to get things done. You get things done in government. You can get a lot of things done in opposition. Won't dismiss that, but you get a lot more done in government. But you also have to make an awful lot of tough decisions. And I fundamentally believe that if you have an ideological purity about who you're... A, a mass ideological purity ruling out parties that are similar, it's okay to say, like, realistically, Rich and I are never going to go into government together and we don't want to go into government together. That's fine. I have no ambition to go into government with Sinn Féin. But of course... Speak to independents, speak to the Labour Party, speak to Social Democrats, and as part of a government with Fianna Fáil and the Greens, that when no government would be formed... Well, when he may lots have mopped others, them all up. And if they'd mopped them up, they'd mopped them up. But I think the Labour Party made a very brave decision in 2011. When the country was on the knees in 2011, it was a horrendous time. Mm -hmm. They went in, we had mass unemployment, we had a troika, and they went in and they made decisions that turned fundamentally the economy and our society around. They got massive gains in that government. We saw marriage equality passed by referendum. Labour drove that in government. They can say they drove that in government. And I think a lot of Labour members and whoever many left, they have their seven TDs and their tall and their four um, senators will be very proud that they achieved that. And I'm very proud that my party, Fine Gael, right. um, were driven to that point by the Labour Party as well. Another issue, of course, that's been the big story of the week uh, is the uh, the Windsor framework. Uh, now it's no longer the Northern Ireland Protocol. I know Brexit is an issue you've worked on uh, for very many years. Um, is this it? Is it finally done? Well, Brexit's certainly not done. Brexit's going to be with us for a, at least a generation. And it's going to take an awful long time to put together the absolute economic self-harm that is Brexit. However, 
I think when it comes to the implementation of Brexit on this island, this should be it, to be honest. There is no reason why um, parties can't rally around. I think ultimately the British government will back this. It'll be passed massively, the two or three small bits of legislation in Westminster. But the key to it is let's get the executive mm. back up and running. Let's get the assembly back up and running. That's what everyone wants um, on this island in Britain and wider in Europe. This should be it. The European Union have moved heaven and earth to accommodate valid concerns. They've come up with a new system within the protocol. Unions would say this, deal, this framework shows that they were right. Europe could do better and they were able to come back and put more on the table, particularly addressing what they saw as the democratic deficit. But why were Europe able to do better? Because they actually took the time. They weren't rushed into negotiations by a British government who constantly triggered Article 50 or demanded deadlines at dawn. And equally, the British government in the last couple of weeks, something that went kind of unnoticed is they agreed the real-time sharing of data that will enable the green and red lead line system and I really welcome the storm and break because that's something that Northern Irish politicians unionist nationalists and other have been calling for it's that MEPs from my own party and Barry Andrews from Fianna Fáil have been calling for in the European Parliament I've called for it seven times from the back benches that's a good move I really fundamentally hope that the DUP back this oh. um, and I think the people in Northern Ireland expect that I know you don't normally give credit to Conservative politicians, but do you cr give credit to Rishi Sunak for what he's done? Not particularly, no. I don't, sorry to say it, I don't. Uh, I, give, I give a lot of credit to uh, the people of the North, who I think are fed up with the sectarian game playing, particularly of the DUP. Uh, I mean, one of the... the the important dimensions of what's been going on in the North in the last while that is not being talked about enough is there's been widespread strikes over the cost of living. Mm. Uh, and you see nurses, teachers, public sector workers on the streets, Catholic and Protestant together, fighting for better public services, fighting for better wages and conditions. Now, to me, that is the hope. That's the thing that can challenge the entrenched sectarianism that the DUP want to con continually sort of perpetuate. But I have to say, we have a situation where the institutional agreements within the Good Friday Agreement allow for a, a sectarian veto all of the time. And if the DUP decide the to... The DeHaan system. Yeah. yeah. And there's a problem because it's based on a sort of sectarian balance and I think that is a problem. It's a little bit like what happened in Lebanon for decades, that you always have to have this sectarian balance and it paralyzes politics. Uh, and I think we need to move beyond that. Uh, and I think we need, you know, ultimately, I think we need to move beyond partition because sectarian partition has been a disaster for people. And I think the hope lies in those sort of movements we're seeing of nurses. And indeed, I mean, Neil mentions marriage equality and credits with the Labour Party. I credit the LGBT campaigners, North and South, who fought, and indeed women's rights activists who fought for abortion rights. And it's movements like that that unite Catholic and Protestant, men and women, LGBT and straight. They are the actual force that then force politicians to so move things in. It's to call referenda, though. Yeah, but actually, well, in fact, even that, it was forced. I mean, you know that, like, if you take the repeal referendum, it was the death of Savita Halapanavar and massive demonstrations on the streets that forced the referendum. It wasn't governments uh, that initiated it. And, you know, Claire Daly put a, a motion during the 2011-2016 government to have a referendum on repeal and just voted against it including the Labour Party, by the way, at the time, voted against having a referendum. It was people on the street forced...
the government to, to have referendums on those things. And I think that's also how we'll begin to move beyond sectarianism in the north of Ireland. I would love to talk with you all about what change is coming in the north and your, whether you'll be the generation that will see what you think of the change that is coming. But we've run right out of time and I believe you've all got pizza coming on the way. We don't normally like that's the advantage of being a live audience because I don't know everyone else at home just watching your politics. You've got to go and get your own pizza. I'm sorry we can't uh, provide it for you. Uh, we're going to have a regular Your Politics back in Leinster House catching up on all of the news of the week. Uh, that'll be tomorrow afternoon as usual. I want to thank uh, UCD Politics and International Relations Society for hosting us here. You've been a lovely audience. Thank you. I want to thank our producers, Jonathan, Rachel Clinch and Jack Good. And for Sound and Vision, Tom Norton, Gar Duffy, Mark Ronahan and Davy Ebbs. So that was such fun. We should do it all again sometime. But for the moment, goodbye and thank you for tuning in.